Time has produced some of the most incredible humans to walk the face of this planet we call home. People who've endured the most harrowing ordeals, pushing their body to the extreme. Whether it's plane crashes, abduction, jungle survival, or even medical anomalies, we explore them all. Who are these people? What happened? Where are they now? Join us to find out. Not me, not today podcast. Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here, and welcome to another episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast. Hello, and hello to everyone, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and I just wanted to say that we're so glad you enjoyed last week's special edition of the Not Me, Not Today podcast. Look out for more special episodes in the coming months. Now, I know we're all in for a rocky ride this week. I can just feel it in the air for some reason. So, I'll cut to the chase. Leisha, what's the story? Today's story is about Alison Botha. This is a rough episode and there are many, many trigger warnings here. This involves abduction, rape, graphic violence, but the tale of her survival and what she went through needs to be told. I know it's strange to say you have a favourite survivor story, but this has recently replaced my top one. To say this is intense and gruesome is an understatement, but if you want to know what ungodly strength is about, this is where you'll hear about it. Okay, deep breaths and let's do this. Our story today takes us to Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Alison grew up in South Africa with her mum, dad and her brother. Her parents divorced when she was a child and she lived with her mother and brother. Alison growing up had a relatively happy childhood. She went to college and graduated. She moved into her own apartment and lived by herself. On Sunday, December 18th, 1994, the weather was warm and sunny. Alison was just 27 years old and spent the day at the beach with her friend Kim and Kim's children. They had a day of chatting and catching up whilst the children made sandcastles in the sand. They did a little bit of swimming, then Kim dropped her children off back home to her husband. They'd had such a wonderful day that they didn't want the fun to stop. So Kim and Alison went back to Alison's apartment and hung out, when two of Alison's friends dropped by unexpectedly. They just hung out and had a good time. They ordered pizza, had some wine, and played Balderdash. Oh, classic. One of my all-time favourite board games as a kid there. (laughs) Right? Alison had promised Kim a lift home, and it wasn't too far of a drive, so she dropped her back. Kim got out of the car, thanked Alison, and went into her house. Alison, in her little yellow Renault 5 car, turned around and drove home. She parked her car, turned off the lights, and when she was gathering her things... A figure appeared holding a knife and forced Alison over onto the passenger seat. Whoa, that escalated so quickly. Well, it actually escalated so quickly that Alison struggled to comprehend what had happened. One minute she'd been parking her car, and the next she was in the passenger seat with a stranger at the steering wheel brandishing a knife. He was relatively tall, slender, but a strong man, a little bit older than Alison. Alison was remarkably calm. What helped her stay calm, she said, was how surreal the experience was. It felt like it wasn't real and it wasn't happening to her. He told her that he wouldn't harm her and he only wanted to use the car for an hour to run some errands. She chose to believe him. She now knows that it was foolish, but she couldn't fathom why someone would want to harm her. Maybe they did just want her car. Alison sat nervously in the car and he asked her name. Susan, she told him, not wanting to give him any real information. She also told him that she had a boyfriend who was waiting at home and would wonder where she was if she wasn't back soon. Alison wanted to try and befriend the attacker. 
gather as much information as she could, sympathize with him if that's what it took. She asked his name. Clinton, he replied. He wasn't really partial to offering up much more information than that, refusing to answer some of her questions. Clinton told Alison he had a quick stop to make. He's going to get a friend who owes him a TV and some money. Yeah, just grabbing some milk and bread, be back in a sec type thing. I know, right? So weird. So strange. Well, Alison started to worry and panic a little bit. But part of her was still holding out hope that this was just part of an errand he had to run and he would soon let her go. Clinton advised Alison to get into the back seat as his friend would want to sit in the front. So Alison crawled back. She sat nervously in the back whilst Clinton drove up and down the streets. At one point, they saw police, which made Clinton nervous. But the police took a different turn, disappearing out of sight. Clinton drove up and down the high street. It was the less desirable part of town, but the street was filled with people. Alison didn't dare alert anyone. After all, she was in the back seat, unable to escape easily. Clinton had to circle the busy street a few times looking for his friend. Alison could tell this angered him and he swore as he searched, eyes scanning the crowd. Eventually, he spotted him standing at the curb. Standing at the side of a road was a large, broad man. Almost Neanderthal-like. He had long hair and was greasy and looked dishevelled. Alison was terrified. There was something about him that terrified her more than Clinton. He got in the car and lit up a cigarette. Alison, in an attempt to befriend them, asked for one too, and they gave her one. Whoa, that's brave. But if you're ever going to need to de-stress, this has probably got to be one of those times. (laughs) Oh yeah, totally. Smart move to try and befriend them too. It's very smart. Clinton then informs her that they have one more place to go. Alison tried to keep her calm and her wits about her. She really started to panic as they drove out towards the beach and there were no street lights, just the stars in the night sky. Eventually they drove into an alcove of a beach. Alison had spotted it before as they drove, however, there were people in the alcove at the time. So Clinton had driven past, then turned around and came back when the people were gone. All that was left was broken glass bottles and empty beer cans. They pulled in, turned off the headlights, and she gulped. It took her a moment to process what was happening. She even asked, what now? Which Clinton was surprised at and responded, but I thought you would have realized we wanted sex. In her book, Alison said she felt stupid for not realizing sooner. He also asked if she would fight. Alison said no, because she thought, well, I'll only be beaten or worse and maybe this is all that they want and they'll just leave after this. This is so dark. That must have been such a hard read. It really was, to be honest, because she gives insights into things that even I don't feel comfortable talking about here and a few pieces I decidedly left out because it really can just get dark and personal. This is dark, but I won't be as graphic as she was in her book. If any of you wanted to buy that, you can read it um, and I'll let you know where to get it at the end as usual. Anyway... He performed oral sex on her and forced her to do the same. He then raped her. Something that really threw and disturbed Alison was that afterwards he kept referring to her as lovely lady when he invited the big burly man to also rape her. He tried, but then he stopped brandishing a large knife. Alison tried all she could to remember the details about them. 
she had decided that they weren't going to get away with this. So she tried to remember their clothes, their shoes, their hair, their eyes. Because Clinton kept referring to her as lovely lady, she felt she might be able to use this to protect herself from the large sidekick brandishing the knife. He was the one that truly terrified her. He was almost silent and spoke in low aggressive grumblings. Alison then heard the big guy call to Clinton. Only he said the name Franz, something Franz wasn't too happy about. She also overheard the name of the big guy, Teens. Oh no, that never ends well. Definitely a knows too much situation. Well, they robbed her, stripped her pretty much naked, and the only thing she really had was a denim jacket that she clung to. Please don't kill me, she begged. She said at this point that Fran's eyes changed. They lost all signs of a soul, and suddenly he terrified her much more than teens. He began to strangle her. Sorry, he said. She urinated and defecated on herself in the car, then passed out. Oh my God. Oh, I know. She wakes up to a rush of cold air in her lungs that shot her awake. There was someone on top of her stabbing her. She then saw the glinting blade slashing away in large swooshing motions at her neck. She counted eight in total. Oh, the pain of that. Well, adrenaline's an incredible thing. She felt no pain. Thank God for that. I mean, it's still horrific, but at least she's not feeling the pain of all of that. Totally. You'd pray for no pain in a situation like that. As a result, Alison was very lucid. She said it was all so surreal as she could see it happening to her and her body reacting, but no pain. She actually felt so alert that it was an instinct for her to turn onto her stomach to protect her. Alison tried to hold her breath to play dead, but there was a bubbling and gurgling noise coming from her neck. So she lifted her hand when they weren't looking and tried to stifle the noise. Do you think she's dead? One of them asked. No one could survive that, said the other. Famous last words, since we're talking about her, well, we, we know she does survive. <laughs> well, that's what I thought when I was reading the book. So anyway, they decided to leave her there on the sand, down at the beach lane, which is off a little alcove on a coast road. She laid there for a few minutes, thinking she was dying and still remarkably lucid. She thought about her family and how she couldn't let those two monsters get away with this. So she wrote their names in the sand. As she did so, she had an out-of-body experience and felt someone there with her. It wasn't a loud booming voice or lights calling her name, but she felt something there with her. Seeing the car lights going past in the distance, past the bushes, helped her make the decision to survive. So, Alison pushed herself onto her hands and felt something slimy. It was her intestines. Oh, that is so gross. It's pretty gross, but it gets so much more grotesque. Grotesque, but fascinating. So, she scooped her intestines up and tried to put them back inside. But they were too slippery and kept coming back out. So, she grabbed her denim shirt that had been discarded and used the shirt to hold them against herself. She still felt no pain, just discomfort and exhaustion. She crawled her way towards the road. She thought that even if she wasn't going to live, she was going to make sure her body was found pretty soon. Alison thought about her mother and how she'd moved out from her house and how her mother would know she'd suffered. 
These were the thoughts that pushed her to keep going. She crawled 15 meters. However, crawling was too exhausting, especially when she had one hand holding her intestines and a shirt. She knew she was going to have to get to her feet and walk. What? How is she still alive? This is actually unbelievable. I know, right? Well, it gets even more insane. So, Alison decides to prop herself onto her feet. It took her a while to muster the strength, but when she finally hoists herself up, she can see the stars, then just darkness. No way. Oh yes way. Her head was resting between her shoulder blades. The slicing and slashing to the throat was so deep it had severed some of the muscles that kept her head upright. So it flopped backwards. She felt for her neck and her hand almost disappeared inside the gaping hole that bubbled and gurgled. She had had fainting spells as a child, so she knew that every so often she was fainting because of the low blood pressure in her head. Well, for obvious reasons. She was going to have to stop it. So, Alison took her free hand, you know, the one not holding her intestines, and grabbed herself by the hair and lifted her head back on top of her body so she could see forwards. What the actual hell? This is zombie level survival. See this? Why this is one of my favourite stories of all time? I know, but wow, I'm actually speechless. <laughs> oh, it's not over yet. So, Alison decided with one hand holding her intestines and the other one holding her head, she was going to walk to the road. Just to give you an insight into Alison's state of mind at the time, she distinctly remembers her sandals coming off her feet. They were attached by the straps around her ankles, but she said they were so annoying they kept making her stumble. Whilst she was walking, her eyesight kept dropping in and out like a dimmer switch because of the loss of blood and blood pressure. She had to prop herself up against a tree for a minute to take a break. Soon after, she pushed on towards the road. When she saw the alcove part where they had driven in, she got a burst of energy. She made it to the road and decided to just lay in the middle of the road, hoping that someone would spot her and stop. Did anyone stop? Well, the first car that came by stopped for a minute, but no one got out, despite her frantic waving and just drove away. Oh my god. Yep. So, Alison lay back down and could feel herself slipping. She saw another car in the distance. She initially thought it was Franz and Teens coming back to finish her off. But then she heard hysterical screaming coming from a woman inside the car. A man and a woman got out. The man rushed to Alison's side. They called an ambulance. When the ambulance arrived, they initially thought she was dead or she wasn't going to make it. So much so that they didn't put on the sirens or speed to the hospital. The man from the car that stayed by her side was Tian. He was a vet student in his first year. He'd had basic understanding of anatomy and some health issues himself that made him aware of certain medical things but and some form of triage, but he wasn't expecting anything like this. Can you imagine how horrifying that would be to be driving home and coming across a body that looks almost mm. dead at the side of the road? What oh. time was she found? Well, interestingly, it all happened very quickly. She was found at 2.45am. The whole ordeal from abductions to the ambulance was just 90 minutes. Wow. I don't know why, but I just thought this would be hours. But I guess with that level of blood loss, you don't have hours. Exactly. So they make it to the hospital and the doctors and nurses are in shock. They work on her abdomen first, peeling off the sticky shirt and rinsing off the dirt and sand from her intestines. 
Whilst they were doing that, she was choking on her own blood. She began to panic and frantically waved at the nurses to get their attention. Finally, a nurse noticed and suctioned it for her. She was then taken to repair her neck. Throughout this ordeal, Alison was fully aware. She was signing consent forms, writing her mother's contact details, her own details, like her name, etc. She looked like a corpse. She was white as a sheet from blood loss, covered in dirt, sand, twigs. Her eyes were bloodshot. Her abdomen was sliced open. Her intestines were pouring out and her neck sliced from side to side. Even her nails were black. That is grim. I still can't believe that she survived that. (laughs) Me either. Well, the gash in her neck was so large and deep that you could see her spinal column through it. She had her thyroid cut in two different places Muscles severed and the lower muscles had retracted back into her neck and her larynx was separated. So the doctors had to wash out her intestines. But as I said earlier, she had urinated and defecated on herself. So her intestines were actually pretty empty. And despite the bowel being ruptured in parts, there wasn't actually any major form of infection. The surgery to clean up her abdomen took about three hours. She'd been stabbed a total of 32 times in the abdomen. They're such sickos. Definitely. The doctor, David Cummins, said that he is a scientist and all he can say is that it was a miracle. I fought in the Rhodesian Bush War and I have never seen anyone with injuries like this survive. These wounds were gross beyond belief. I'll say. 100%. Also in the documentary film, the doctor, David, said that when he came to see Alison and assess her, he initially looked at her neck and was horrified. And a nurse said that that wasn't everything and pulled back the sheet and showed him her abdomen. He couldn't believe she was still alive. Wow. What did her mum say when she found out? So there are actual sections in the book where certain people in her life give an account of where they were when they found out. Her mother said she got a phone call at 5am on December 18th. Alison was in the hospital in surgery at the time. Her mother was asleep in bed. She was shocked. As any parent would be, the worst type of call. Yeah, if you're in your 50s with teens or kids, a 5am phone call is rarely a good phone call. Yeah, it's really not. So, when her mother Claire gets the news, she immediately calls Kim, because she knew that they'd spent the day and evening together. Oh yeah, she just dropped her home. How did she take it? Well, she lost her mind. Sure, only four hours ago she'd seen her. She was in disbelief at first. She thought she was dreaming and that she was thinking that it couldn't be her and must be a mistake. Then she freaked out and felt guilty because it had happened right after she'd asked for the ride home. Did the mum go straight to the hospital? No, actually. Not that she didn't care, but she knew Alison was in surgery and she couldn't do anything about it. So she went to inform the relevant people. Oh, wow. This family and their calm, logical brains. (laughs) I know, right? So Claire called her ex-husband, Brian, Alison's brother and other family and friends. They all prayed together. Her friends said to her that she got a gift or word blessing from God and they decided to look it up. And this is what it said. Do not fear the king of Babylon, for he is a mere man, whereas I am all wise, all powerful, ever present God. And I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. She said that when they read this, she knew Alison would survive. All worry left her shoulders and she headed to the hospital. When she gets there, she gets the rundown on how Alison is and how the surgery went. The prognosis wasn't great, but they were hopeful. 
However, Clara assured the doctors that she would survive. She'd had a message from God to say that she would make it. The doctor must have thought she was crazy. <laughs> he did. Actually, he said that he protested and telling her how grave the situation was, but Claire was having absolutely none of it. Um, David actually pitied her. He felt it would only crush her more if Alison didn't survive. Okay, so how did her dad take the news? Because he doesn't live there anymore, right? No. Did he go to the hospital? So her father took it badly. He was angry extremely angry. He wanted to kill whoever did it. He hopped on the first flight out of there. See, now those are the reactions I'd probably have. Yeah, me too. Well, he hopped on a plane to get there ASAP, but he struggled to sleep on the flight because of anger and worry. He was restless. He said it was a long, agonizing flight. When he finally reaches the hospital, he's relieved to see that she's alive, but angry to see his daughter in this state. He calmed down when she gave him all of the information. When he's there, he bumps into two police officers who have come to speak with Alison. So was she able to speak by then? Ah, well, see, this is where it gets interesting. So Alison's write this whole thing had been remarkably lucid and aware. She had initially written their names in the sand. Then she was thinking about all her annoying sandals, giving consent to procedures and emergency contact information for her parents. So Alison is ready to talk, in theory, but she has a tube in her throat and she is awake and capable of writing. So one of the officers, Anita Swainpool, already thinks she knows who's done this, but needs to get confirmation from Alison. She had two suspects in mind who had been involved in a string of rape and abductions and were out on bail over these. Alison is aware and able to communicate via writing or pointing. They asked her if she would be able to identify them if she saw a picture. Yes, yes she would. So, initially, they gave her some pictures to look at, and she didn't recognise any of them. But after a few minutes, she pointed them out. They were exactly the two people the officers were hoping she would point to. Oh, wow. Did they arrest them straight away after that? Oh, yeah. And this part is also just as crazy. So they go round to their house, and they're both together. This is at about 9am in the morning. So remember, these guys have gone home with her car, got drunk, and fallen asleep. They woke up, made breakfast using the knife that they had tried to kill Alison with. They hadn't even cleaned off the blood they wanted to keep it on there. They really are monsters, aren't they? Definitely, of nightmare proportions. So when the cops arrive, they talk to Franz. They inform him that they are going to be arresting them on rape and attempted murder. They were out on bail on rape charges already, so they thought the cops were fishing at first. Until the officer said that the girl last night you tried to kill survived. Well, Franz went white as a sheet. The officer said that in all his years of being a police officer, he had never seen the colour drain so fast from somebody's face. So, officially on December 18th, Franz Dutois was arrested and he already had two previous charges for rape in the past three months. Teens Kruger, who was just 19 years old, had one charge of rape and it was alongside one of the rapes that Franz was accused of. Why were they even out? Because the law is a complicated process and sometimes it doesn't always make the most obvious sense. So, on December 4th, they'd raped a pregnant 21-year-old who'd managed to get away. December 4th? That's three weeks prior to this Allison incident, right? It is. I told you this is crazy story through and through. So actually, whilst they initially tried to deny it, 
Franz eventually came clean, showing absolutely no remorse and explained that actually they'd intended to do it to someone else the previous night. They were then arrested for the crime. Well, what good is being arrested if they're just going to get bail in a way? Did they actually get convicted in the end? They did, and it was quite the trial. Something I'll touch on in a bit, because I want to take it back to Alison for a second. Yeah, sure. How long was she in hospital for? Well, Alison was discharged on December 31st. So she was in the hospital for about two weeks. Naturally, there was a lot of healing to do. She also contracted an infection whilst at the hospital, which delayed her recovery a bit. But there were things like bandage changes, which can be horrific on her abdomen. She was told she would probably never be able to have children as her womb had stab wounds and scarring. Her neck also had to heal. She wasn't sure if she was going to be able to speak properly because the extent of her neck injuries, scarring and mental scarring of the ordeal because she'd also been raped, which hadn't left her with the same extent of physical injuries, which were exceedingly obvious. Oh, so brutal. I imagine she moved in with her mother after that. Yeah, she did. She moved back home and didn't want to be afraid to go to her apartment to get her things. She wanted to reclaim it and not be afraid to go back home. It was her injuries and vulnerability that made her move back with her mother, which wasn't too far away. The remarkable thing about Alison is her transparency and the ability to be vulnerable and open, and her drive to not let this stop her from thriving in life. She didn't shy away from the incident. She didn't close off. She knew she had to talk about it. She would openly talk about the rape and the incident. However, because these men hadn't been convicted yet, she had to remain relatively quiet. Anything she did say could harm the case. So, Alison gave a short interview about her recovery and wrote a letter thanking everyone for their kind gifts, cards, flowers, love and support. She found herself being tired and snappy and short-tempered, so she decided to see a counsellor. This was hard for her. She was fiercely independent and now she was reliant on everyone. She couldn't get water on her wounds or bandages due to the risk of infection, so she would splash herself with water like a bird in a birdbath. Her scars made her sad. There were so many and a constant reminder of what they had done. She also got her car back, but obviously there was too much emotion tied to it as well as blood and other human excretions. So she traded it in for a burgundy Mazda. She also must have had some serious PTSD after that. She did. She felt annoyed that she'd had it because she felt so strong. But she struggled being in a car, especially when they were stopped. Like if they were parked or waiting at a traffic lights, it would panic her. She didn't want to let this stop her from living her life and getting a routine back. So she asked to go back to work. Someone at work suggested using a scarf to cover up her neck as the scars were pretty horrific and extensive. She wasn't thrilled at first, but understood why. It wasn't that she was ashamed, but it could be shocking for others. Okay, so now we'll talk about the case. Okay, cool. So it was a big case in South Africa. As the case approached, the news of the story hit the papers, and it was a media frenzy at Alison's door. Sons of Satan was the title of one Herald headline. A lot happened during this time. It's pretty much half the book, along with her internal mental thoughts, which I don't have time to include. Also, it'd basically be an audiobook by then. So, first of all, in the beginning of the investigation, she was asked to identify them in a lineup. But this wasn't behind one of those mirror window screens like you see in movies she would have to go into the room and put her hand on the shoulder of the two men who did it. What? Yeah. That's so wrong and outdated even for them. I know, and that's what she thought. She was not okay with that. 
Anyway, the amount of evidence on them was overwhelming. They pretty much admitted everything. They had had nine beers and a 2.5 litre jug of sherry at a barbecue earlier that day. At the magistrate's court, teens released a statement. I'm sorry for what I did. As I stand here, I have great remorse for my deeds. I apologise for what I did to her. Furthermore, I just ask for mercy. What? No way. He has no remorse. He's only saying that because it wants to look like he's got some so they can go easy on him. It's so infuriating. Well, wait for Fran's statement. Who, by the way, has a wife and child? My wife and child, however, know my good properties. I know I have a problem. When the bad side comes into me, then it is as if a supernatural power takes over my body. I mean, he hasn't even apologised in that. Well, this devoted husband and doting father called a press conference to drum up attention. So, both Franz and Thines considered themselves Satanists. At the press conference, Franz told them that he was going to denounce Satan and have an exorcism because he was possessed. Interestingly, Franz's lawyer withdrew two days before the trial after the press conference, citing ethical reasons. Geez, then you know it must be bad. Exactly. Well, the new lawyer who was appointed pretty much the day before the trial, I cannot imagine that man got any sleep reading those new case notes the night before. I'm sure he banged his head on the table a few times while doing it as well. <laughs> Probably. The new lawyer tried to go down the route of Satanism, possession, and death metal music being the reason they did all of these things. I hate when they blame those things for those kind of cases. How did Franz and Thienes know each other? Well, Franz was into Satanism for a while. Not the real kind, he went dark. He had met a head witch in his hometown and she told him all about it. It got him excited and enamoured and she said that she had special powers. She was supposedly summoning demons and he said that he could see, hear and smell them. That they were real. Real Looney Tune. Franz was then shipped to the army by his parents after he started going nuts. But whilst in the army, in time, he still somehow managed to find other Satanists. One of those was teens. Franz even did a ritual to be blessed with a son on his birthday, July 6th. A wish that was bizarrely granted. That's so weird. Very. Also, weirder still, he said that when he finished the ritual, he felt God was looking down on him and it weirded him out. Also, the name of the demon that supposedly possessed Franz was Incubus. Teens was younger, only 19 at the time of arrest, and Franz was in his early 30s. Teens had had a tough childhood, having suffered abuse. His mother was married three times and it was incredibly unstable. Teens was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. When the result day came about, the room was packed. They got life in prison. Franz actually got three life sentences, locked away from society, um, where they were both guilty on all charges. And this is a result for only her trial too. They still had one to two prior rape convictions that they were on bail for. Their files were marked never to be released. Fran's wife burst into tears and sobbed. They were led out there and then to start their sentence. And as they were leaving, teens slapped the wall on the way down, screeching, here we go, fuck you all. True nutters. Indeed. After the trial ended, Alison waited for it all to go back to normal. She was finally able to talk about it now. So first she had to deal with that. 
She went on to radio shows and did interviews. There was love pouring in from all over the world, and even from her own hometown. Things like offering to fix her car or putting up a bronze statue. That's so nice. Isn't it? Well, this is one of those times that Alison found the hardest. Before, she'd been waiting for this case and something happening and recovery, but now she was expected to move on, and it wasn't like she'd anticipated. She gradually lost interest in her job. She kept pushing the boundaries and limits with them, showing up late, not showing up at all, with no explanation. Her bosses were super understanding, and she kept waiting to be fired. They didn't want to fire her, considering all that she'd been through. So eventually, she realized that they were too nice, and she was going to have to be brave and quit. She became a public speaker, detailing her ordeal and how she overcame it and was able to survive. Was she given like a medical miracle badge or anything? <laughs> Not quite, but she did win an award from the Rotary Foundation which, and was named a Paul Harris Fellow. Her award was for the furtherance of better understanding and friendly relations between peoples of the world and for courage beyond the norm. The vet student, Tian, who gave his first aid and helped Alison throughout this whole ordeal, remained very close to her and was given an award for his humanity. He also actually left veterinary and decided to pursue medicine after that fateful night. Alison was named Femina's Magazine's First Woman of Courage. Oh, so what happened after that? So, Alison went on to meet a man named Tieni Bota in 1995. She initially saw him while she was out with her mother, but she was properly introduced when she went to a party at a friend's house. Whilst she was there, she noticed that he was very aloof and seemed to spend a lot of the time on his own. Her friends suggest that Alison go onto the roof with some wine and get to know him because she thought that they would be a good match. He had suffered through some things in his life that she may be able to help him with. Tieni was a simple man. She was intrigued by him as he'd hardly ever smiled and seemed a bit dark and broody. They became friends and got to know each other. Eventually, they shared their first kiss. His personality started to change, and his mother, when she first met Alison, ran to her and hugged her, saying, What have you done to my son? He is smiling again. Oh, that's tremendous. Isn't it? Well, in June 1996, he proposed at dinner, and everyone was delighted. They got their rings in September and married four months later. He was actually the one who organised most of the wedding. Their honeymoon was in Mombasa and they eventually settled down in Nisna. Anyway, Alison spent a lot of time public speaking and she still does. She's been to over 35 different countries and spoken to audiences of over 8,000 people or more. So she actually went on to also have three children because she's shaking out miracles like the confetti. Oh, wow. That really is amazing. I love this story. Well, the vet student turned doctor actually was due to deliver her second baby, but got sick the day before and couldn't make it. Alison's marriage to Tieni didn't last, though, sadly, and they divorced in 2008, something that makes Alison upset to this day. She regrets failing at marriage. Those were her words. She refuses to elaborate on why it failed, which is fair because it's her business. So these Frans and Thien still alive in prison then? Yes. However, they were looking for parole. There was this stupid law where all prisoners after 2004 can earn credits that will be taken into account at their parole hearing. Anyway, when news of that broke, there was an outcry because teens wanted to use it to reduce a sentence. 
Anyway, currently they're both alive in prison. Alison is also thriving at life. So she still public speaks. She wrote a book and she's had movies made about her story. Her book, I Have Life, was written a few years after the incident, but more modern versions have the newer sections giving a brief update about what happened since. I read this in about 24 hours. I could not put it down. It goes into more about her feelings and emotion and mental state. There are also parts from other people in her life who were involved. It's a fascinating read. There's a movie adaptation of the story called Alison. She publicly still speaks and tries to inspire the masses. So yeah. That's the incredible story of Alison Botha. Wow, that was insane. It really was. Oh, I knew it was going to be a mad one, but for some reason I wasn't expecting something quite to that level. Well, Alison, the other survivors we've covered so far, and the ones we'll discuss in the future have all shared that same will, determination, and instinct to survive. It's truly remarkable. Great story. Isn't it? Well, before we go, we'd really appreciate you stopping by our Facebook and Instagram pages. Not me, not today podcast. Press like or follow or leave us a review. Yeah, don't forget to follow. It's actually been really nice to hear from you over the last few weeks. But if you haven't got in touch yet, don't be shy. Let us know what kind of stories you like and which have been your favourite so far. Not me, not today podcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to stop by our website, not me, not today podcast.com. Until next week, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not me, not today podcast.